Good to be back with you. I appreciate uh, the invitation to come back and spend some time with you and, and get to know you just a little better. In 1966, the Italian filmmaker Sergio Leone produced the final film in the Dollar series featuring Clint Eastwood, Lee Van Cleef, and Eli Wallach. Now, I am a big Western fan. I love to watch Western movies, and I love to watch the older ones. Seems like they are just a little bit better. I can remember sitting around and watching Western movies with my father. He enjoyed that, and I guess that's where I learned to appreciate that. But when we think of that, you know, we always think of a life that is kind of a more of a carefree life, uh, not a whole lot of responsibility, so it is very appealing to us when we look at the times when <clears throat> that era was uh, taking place. But anyway, the plot of the movie that, or one of the plots of the movie, this final series, or the plot of one of the movies, involved three men. It involved a bounty hunter by the name of Blondie. He was the good. It involved another bounty hunter called Angel Eyes, Lee Van Cleef. He was the bad. And then there was another man. He was a Mexican bandit named Tuco, the ugly, played by Eli Wallach. Now, I don't know how they talked him into taking that role, but I would have had to have thought twice about that. Thus, the name and the underlying theme is understood in the title, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Now, that's what I've entitled my sermon this morning, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. In life, we're going to be subject to just that, aren't we? We're going to come across some good. We're going to come across some people that are bad. And we're going to come across some people that are absolutely ugly. And we're not talking about physical appearance. We're talking about the inner man, the spiritual part of man. In his third letter, and we're going to take our text this morning from 3 John. 3 John. Be opening your Bible to 3 John as we look at that short letter. In his third letter, the Apostle John penned to Christians. He makes mention of the good, the bad, and the ugly. And we see two men that are good, one that is bad, and I believe John is instructing us in a very practical way on how to live in a life where we come into contact with the good and the bad, how to live a Christian life because we are demanded to live a Christian life no matter the circumstances. And I think when we look in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and Paul is talking about uh, the uh, relationship between husband and wife, the relationship of the, the, the Christian that was married to a non-Christian, the Christian married to a Christian, the Christian that has been uh, abandoned, he is describing in there, using those examples, and by the way, he uses the example of slave to owner, slave to master. He says, you can be a Christian no matter... What situation in which you live? You can be a Christian. I think John's talking about that in his letter to third, in Third John. You can be a Christian no matter the circumstances under which you find yourself. You see, we have to apply that to our lives. Don't we have to understand that? Times are very difficult and we find ourselves facing problems in this life that we'd rather not face. But we still have to remain faithful. And I think John is instructing on that. Now we're going to notice... On either side of his addressing the good, the bad, the ugly, we're going to have two good men. 
In the middle, we're going to have a bad guy. We're going to look at him for a few moments as well. But I want us to notice first, let's start with the good. We're going to notice, and this is our first point this morning, a man that was devoted. He was devoted. The letter is addressed to Gaius. And what a compliment. A sound, faithful Christian. As in his other letters, John always conveyed to the reader his great affection, his love for them. He wanted to encourage them to be faithful. Even when he had to address topics that were a little less than desirable to address. We see that in Paul as well, right? He writes a letter to the Corinthian brethren extolling his love for them and then almost immediately within the letter, the first chapter that has been designated a chapter, he says, I've heard some bad things about you. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to address that. And so he does that, but he, he shows this great affection for them. He makes known of his prayer that he would prosper both physically and financially. He's praying for Gaius that he would prosper in that way, both physically and financially. Now, I think it's a very important for us to, for us to understand this very important financial standard. God is happy and wants us to be able to work in such a way that we can financially secure ourselves, that we can have money to be able to live. In fact, you know, there is not a thing in this world wrong with being extremely wealthy. Nothing wrong with that. Now, I tell people all the time that I'm working on my second million because that first one didn't pan out for me. So I'm working on the second one. But you know what? There is not a thing in this world wrong with being rich. Nothing. Now, if we allow that to interfere with our relationship with God, then we have a problem with that, just as the rich young ruler did, right? We see that in Matthew 10, 17 through 22. He came up to the Lord and he said, Master, Lord, what must I do to gain eternal life? And of course, Christ being God in the flesh, 100% man, 100% God, he perceived in his heart, and he said, here's what you need to do. Of course, he had already told the Lord about how he had kept all the commandments perfectly. He probably had a little pride issue as well. But he said, go sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. Now, do we have to sell all that we have, give it to the church, and then just simply uh, live on borrowed and begged uh, means? Well, of course not. But if we were like the rich young ruler, we probably would have to do that. If we allowed our riches in this life to interfere with our spiritual lives, we need to get rid of that, right? That's the whole point of Jesus saying, look, if your eye offends, you pluck it out. If your arm offends, you cut it off. He's not talking about self-mutilation. He's talking about things in this life that stand in between us and Him. Get rid of that. And in this particular case, the rich young ruler had to get rid of his riches. But there's nothing wrong with prospering financially. In fact, John prayed for that, right? It appears in the letter that he wasn't prospering very well uh, financially or physically. Thus the prayer. But it's okay if he was. But his prosperity, if it came, physically or financially, but we're mostly important, uh, uh, interested in his spiritual prosperity. His spiritual prosperity came because it was based upon a very important principle as we look at this man that was devoted. A very important principle. Notice what John said. John 
3 John verse 3. For I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. The most important aspect of prosperity, whether it's spiritual or physical or financial, it can only be possible if we have the truth of God in us. Now, someone says, well, people that own these huge companies, they are filthy, stinking rich, and they don't even believe in God. Well, that's true. But they're not going to prosper financially in the judgment, are they? They're not going to prosper physically in the judgment. All that's going to go away. We're not going to have any of that. And the most important thing that we're going to have is are we going to prosper spiritually? And they're not going to do that. Now, temporarily, they may be okay. But this life is so temporary, it almost doesn't matter aside from the fact that it is a training ground for us to be faithful to God and to live for Him and to prepare for eternity. That's all this life really is about. And we have to do the best we can do in it. Now along the way, can we prosper physically and financially? Absolutely. And God wants us to do that if we're able. Now there are at least three things that the truth does for us. Now notice, that's the principle on which Gaius walked. The truth was in him. And John was pleased. He was tickled to death that he heard that commendation from him. There are at least three things that the truth does for each faithful Christian. I want us to notice, the truth purifies. We see that in 1 Peter 1, 22-23. Peter said, Seeing ye have purified your souls, Who's he talking to? He's talking to those of like precious faith. He's talking to Christians. He tells Christians, you purified your soul. Now, does that mean they saved themselves? Absolutely not. But what that does mean is they had a part in their salvation. They had a part in their salvation. They had to accept what God was offering. He said, you believe on me, you repent of past sins, you confess Christ as your Savior, you're immersed in water for the forgiveness of sins, and you live a faithful life. You purified your souls. Every Christian that has ever lived purified his own soul by being obedient to the gospel. Grace through faith. A faithful obedience. Secondly, I want us to notice, truth sanctifies. John 17, 17. Wasn't that the prayer? That was the prayer on the part of Jesus, wasn't it? That we be sanctified through His truth. Also, truth edifies. That's the third thing truth does. Truth edifies. Acts 20, verse 32. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, here it is, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance. Truth edifies. It builds us up. It gives us the strength to endure the bad and the ugly. Right? That's what the truth does for us. Of course, the principle again by which Gaius lived was that he walked in that truth. He walked in the truth. He lived the truth. The truth was his life and he based it upon that. The psalmist recorded this. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. What does the word of God do for us? It shines a light on me, right? 
It shines a light on me and I can look around and I can say, this is where I am. It's a light under my feet. I know where I am in relationship to God. It's a light under my path. It shows me the way in which I ought to walk so I can stay in the proper relationship with God. It's amazing, isn't it? That the truth does that for us. That was the case because the psalmist, which I believe was David that wrote this, he said he had hid the Word of God in his heart that he might not sin against God. He hid the Word of God in his heart that he might not sin against God. He knew that Word. He digested that Word. It was in his mind. He understood what God wanted. It shined a light on him. He understood where he was in relationship to God, whether good or bad. And it shined the light down the path which he ought to walk. That's what the truth did. And that's the principle that the devoted Gaius lived by. See, that's the only way that the truth can direct our lives, though, right? It has to be in our minds. We do not learn about the Word of God through osmosis, do we? That's the only term I remember from science class. Osmosis. I can't hold the Bible in my hand and then it go into my heart. My, my spiritual heart, right? My mind. I have to open the words of the Bible. I have to dig down into it. I have to digest it. I have to put it in me. And I have to live by it. That's how we walk in the truth, right? Gaius practiced the truth. He practiced the truth. That's how you walk in the truth. John described Gaius as one that, notice verses 5 through 8, one that doest faithfully whatsoever you do to the brethren and to strangers which have borne witness of your charity before the church, whom if you bring forward on your journey, on their journey after a godly sort, you will do well. Because that for his name's sake they went forth, taking nothing of the Gentiles, we therefore ought to receive such that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. He lived the truth and he helped others in it. Isn't that important? It's one thing to know the truth and we better know it, but it's another thing to reach out to someone else and give them that truth and bring them in and let them be a part of the family of Christ. Not a greater thing can happen in this world. We see that His love was active. It was active. You know, when we look in the, the natural realm, we notice when we plant a garden, and I love to plant gardens. I didn't get to put one out this year. When we plant a garden, and we put that tomato plant in the ground, or we... Plant. Now, I don't plant okra. I know Clay loves that stuff. I can't. I've been trying to eat okra for 30 years. Can't eat it. When you plant whatever it is you plant, it grows, right? What do you do when it stops growing? You pull it up and you throw it away. It's either growing or it's dead, right? That's how our love is. Our love ought to grow or it's dead. If it's not growing, it's dead. And we, need to, we need to think about that, right? Our love is active. John admonished in his first letter, 1 John 3, 18, he said, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Do we need to hear I love you? Absolutely. A good friend of mine told me years ago when I got married, he said, here's how you don't want to do it. He said, don't, don't tell your wife on the day you get married, hey, I love you. If anything changes, I'll let you know. He said, you got to tell her every day. I haven't been too good about that. I'm going to try to do better. But see, we, we have to hear I love you, but what do we need? We need the action behind that, right? We need the action behind that. What if the standard of our spiritual health applied to our physical and our financial health? Oh, uh-oh. 
Let's think about that, right? What if my physical and my financial health was directly related to my spiritual health? You know, we have children, they begin to grow up on us. And we decide we're going to help them go to college, we're going to help them do this. We want to try to help them start life in a good financial situation without thousands and thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of dollars of student debt or whatever the case may be. We don't want that for them, right? But too often do people in the world, and many Christians, not even think about starting their children off in a spiritual way that keeps them from being in spiritual debt. So we ought to think about that, right? We need to be able to apply our standard to our spiritual life. Too often, we place our emphasis on our bank account. Look, again, I'm not opposed to money. Okay, I think money is we've got to have it to live. We've got to have it to work. We've got to have it to do the things we need. But we ought to be opposed to loving money. We have to be opposed to that. Jesus warned, said, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. By the time it comes, when Christ returns, and we see Him coming in the cloud, look, this earth is going to be destroyed. And everything in it is going to be destroyed. And that means our bank accounts. That means our cars. That means our houses. Our homes. You know, Jesus came to earth. He didn't have a home. Didn't have a place to lay his head. He didn't have anything but the clothes on his back and some food that someone gave him. Right? You know, when we read about he, uh, Jesus being hungry, he didn't create food for himself. He created food through miraculous means to feed those that were around him. When he was hungry, he was just hungry. When he was tired, he was just tired. When he was hurting, he was just hurting. He did not do things to help himself. He understood you need things in this physical life, but we need things in the spiritual life much more. Exactly what did Jesus mean by that? Well, that's just what he meant, right? The day of the Lord's going to come as a thief in the night. When I come, all this is going to pass away. Peter said, they described it this way, Second Peter three ten through 11. He said, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be? in all holy conversation and godliness. It's okay to have the physical things, but they're going away. How ought you to live spiritually speaking? It's so funny, one of our elders at Cordova was working late one night in the, in the church building, and on Wednesdays, during the middle of the day, we have a, a, an alarm, a siren that goes off every Wednesday to practice if we have a tornado or other... The Russians invade or whatever the case may be. This siren goes off. Get us used to listening for that. He said he was in there working. He'd worked real late the night before, so he was tired in there working. All of a sudden, that, that siren went off. He said, it scared me to death. He said, I thought the Lord was coming back. He was so tired, he wasn't thinking straight. He said, all I could think about was, i got to get home. i got to go get my family. And then he said, I came to myself and I said, why would I think that? <laughs> Well, what good is it going to do for me to go home? And I, and I made fun of him. You know, I laughed at him. We are just joking. I said, boy, dude, he thought the Lord had come back. Heard that great si- that siren. And sure enough, the same thing happened to me one day. I was outside. I was right beside one of the sirens at a, at a convenience mart, putting some air in my tires. And that thing went off. It absolutely scared me to death. But I should have been happy, shouldn't I? 
I should have welcomed that. If I thought that's what that was, I ought to look toward the sky and said, Lord, I'm so glad you're back. But it scared me, made me think, what, why am I scared? Am I not spiritually secure like I ought to be? So we need to think about those things, right? I want us to notice that as we look in our passage, we talk about the good. Now let's talk a little bit about the bad. We go from the devoted to the disgraceful. That's our second point. To the disgraceful. Who are we talking about? Diotrephes. Diotrephes was a disgraceful man because he did not receive the truth. God's words are life. They will set the soul free. We see that in John 8, 32. In not receiving the truth, he would also not receive into his presence those that carry the truth with them. That's the kind of man Diotrephes was. The church missionaries would come through. It was the culture of the time to invite those men into your home give them uh, some food to eat, help them wash their feet, give them a place to rest. And Diotrephes didn't want that. He didn't want the truth coming into his home. He didn't even want it coming into the church. He'd shut the doors, wouldn't let them come in. The only way that we can ever receive God in the proper way is to listen to His words. We have to listen to the truth. We have to immerse ourselves in that. We have to listen to what He has spoken to us. Now look, the speaking is over. Right? We're not going to have any more speaking. God's uh, direct communication with mankind ended about 2,000 years ago. The age of miracles have pa- has passed, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. But He still has spoken to us and we have it recorded for us. Notice what the writer of Hebrews said. God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets hath in these last days spoken to un- unto us by His Son whom He hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also He made the worlds, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, end up holding all things by the word of His power. When He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the Majesty on high. See, we have to allow Christ's words to penetrate our hearts. We have to have that, Hebrews 11 verse 6, right? Without faith it is impossible to please Him. But we need to look at the rest of that verse. We must believe He's a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. We have to diligently place that word in our hearts. We have to be dedicated to Christ. We have to repent of all past sins. That's what Paul said, wasn't it? Acts 17, verse 30, he was preaching that fabulous sermon on Mars Hill. And he said, in times past, God overlooked. He allowed certain things to happen. He never overlooked sin. But he allowed men to do certain things. But now he says, command all men everywhere to repent. You have to turn away. But why? Because just exactly what the Hebrews writer said, Christ came into the world. He brought the words of life. The Old Testament wasn't the words of life. It prepared those for the words of life. It ushered in the words of life. But it's not the words of life. Now we have the words of life. He says, listen to it, repent, confess. I want us to notice when we talk about this idea of confession... There's this great movement in the denomination world and it has infiltrated the church that once you believe on Jesus Christ, you just make that confession, I believe Jesus Christ is God's Son, you're automatically saved. That is absolutely foreign to the Scripture. How do we know that? Let's notice Romans 10, 9 and 10. With the heart man believeth unto righteousness. This is particularly in verse 10. 
with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Now let's think about that. Unto. He didn't say into, he said unto. I'm unto the edge of the platform. Now I take one more step, I'm not unto it anymore. I'm over it. I'm into it. I'm into the floor, right? I have to have every step between here and there. Each one counts. But the final step, you have to have it as well. Okay? So confession is unto salvation. And then, of course, immersion in water for the forgiveness of sin washes your sins away. Think about Saul of Tarsus on the way to Damascus. Can't wait to get there. Has the authority of the, the Sanhedrin council. He's going to arrest some Christians. He's going to throw them in jail. Hopefully they'll be killed. I know that's what he had to be and what he was thinking. He watched Stephen be murdered in that way. And then Jesus appeared to him. He asked him, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus whom thou persecutest. He said, you go on into the city. And there, not here, there it will be told you what you must do. Well, what did he do for the next three days? He prayed. He fasted, he repented, he had called on the name of Jesus by confessing, in in some ways by confessing his name, he said, your Lord, he believed. Can you imagine what was going through his mind? I just watched Stephen be murdered. Stephen was right. Jesus appeared to me. He repented, he believed, he confessed. He prayed for three days. What does the the denominational world tell us we have to do to be saved? Say the sinner's prayer, right? Let me tell you something. Saul prayed for three days. He fasted for three days. And then Ananias came to him, taught him the gospel. And what did he say in verse 16? Saul, Saul, why tarriest thou? Why are you waiting? Arise, be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Now people say, well, calling on the name of the Lord is means calling on His name. Lord, I believe who you are. No, that's not it. That's part of it. Calling on the name of the Lord means being obedient to the Lord. And he got up, he was baptized, and he became a member of the church of Christ. And boy, look at the good that he did for the world. At that point, in our passage, Gaius has done all that. Now he's walking in the truth. We've got this guy named Diotrephes who was disgraceful. He didn't want to receive the truth. Why? Because he refused to walk in the light of Christ. He refused to walk in the light of God. He had deceived himself by thinking too highly of who he was. See, we can't do that. We have to guard ourselves. Notice what Paul said in Galatians 6, 2-3. Bear you one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if a man think himself to be something, when he is nothing, he is deceived. Uh, Diotrephes had deceived himself. That's a problem in the world today. Diotrephes loved the preeminence, verse 9. He wanted to be the ruler over the church. That is not the mindset we need in the church. We're not going to be rulers over the church. We're going to be leaders. We're going to rule in the church as God has said to rule in the church. But we're not going to be dictators. We're not going to be tyrants. That's what Diotrephes was. Diotrephes was not what he needed to be. He aligned himself with false teachers too. Verse 10. Now at this point in the letter, John returns to the good. 
We've had the devoted, the disgraceful, and now he talks about Demetrius, the dependable. That's our final point. Demetrius had a good reputation among men, didn't he? He had a good report among all men, verse 12. He said that you know that record is true. What about the value of a good name? It's priceless, isn't it? The value of a good name is priceless. Proverbs 22, verse 1, The wise man said, A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches, and loving favor rather than silver and gold. Notice what Shakespeare said. Shakespeare said this, Who steals my purse steals trash. Tis something, nothing. Twas mine, tis his, and has been slave to thousands. But he that filches from me my good name robs me of that which not enriches him and makes me poor indeed. Now he took the words of Solomon and he created that statement. Boy, it's right though, isn't it? A good name. Like Gaius, there was a reason that John spoke of Demetrius like he did. There was witness to that. There was witness to that, verse 12. And because of that, John and others would give a recommendation to Demetrius. His reputation necessitated someone to recommend him. And that can be valuable in this life too. Remember Onesimus, Philemon 10 through 12? Paul gave him a recommendation. He said, bring him in, accept him as a brother. That recommendation was priceless. Even better than that, when we finish our course in life faithfully, guess who's going to recommend us? Jesus Christ is going to recommend us. He's going to say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. What a recommendation. Boy, that's what we want. As we look at John's letter here, we see Gaius and Demetrius. We see Diotrephes. We see the good and the bad. But wait a minute. The title is, The Good, the Bad, the Ugly. Where's the ugly? The ugly becomes apparent when we realize how the actions of Diotrephes will affect his eternal being. As far as we know, he never repented of his sinful lifestyle. As far as we know, Diotrephes died and he is in torments with the rich man. And that's ugly. That's ugly. Nothing can ever be worse than losing our very souls. That's a terrible existence. It's going to be painful and agonizing. It's never going to end and that is ugly. We have to have obedience to His gospel plan of salvation if we want to avoid the ugly. We have to maintain our spirituality like Gaius did, like Demetrius did, if we want to avoid the ugly. We see the good and the bad and the ugly in this life, and we don't want to see that in the next life. When, when we stay focused on the good, we ignore the bad, and I don't mean overlooking error, but moving forward with the good, we can definitely avoid the ugly. And that's what we want to do. If you find yourself in position this day, at this hour, to accept the Lord's invitation, it's always extended, at this point, we want to extend the Lord's invitation to those that may have never obeyed the gospel. Faith, repentance, confession, immersion in water, faithful living gets us to heaven. Some of us make mistakes from time to time. We step outside the light of Christ and we do things we're not supposed to do, but God has made provision for that and He allows us to come back in. Through repentance and confession, He'll forgive us. Prayer to Him. If it's of a private nature, we can take care of that privately. If it's of a public nature, then we need to handle that publicly. We need to own the sin, and we need to say, I'm sorry for it. And we need to stop doing it. And ask the church to pray for us, and God will accept us back in. He wants that to happen. If you stand in need this day,
to answer this invitation, do that as we stand and as we sing.